0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Prosecuting Donald Trump. Well, we are on Indictment Watch again. Uh, We've been on Indictment Watch with respect to the Manhattan Bragg case, and we're now on Indictment Watch with respect to the federal classified documents or so-called Mar-a-Lago case. Um, I'm here with Mary McCord, and we suspect this week, if not next week, is going to be a long week, and uh, Mary and I will have the pleasure of talking with each other and with all of you um, probably quite frequently. So hi, Mary. How are you doing? Good
1: morning, Andrew. Last week you were traveling, this week I'm traveling. So with my luck, the last time I traveled, there was an (laughs) Alvin Bragg indictment. So uh, we'll see what happens this week.
0: So, so you're the jinx or the lucky charm, whichever way it works. <laughs> yeah, I I was very lucky. I was in Europe last week, as you know, and I I think it was great that Jack Smith held off just because of my vacation plans.
1: That's right. I'm I'm hoping if I'm going to make anything out of this trip, but you know, we'll see.
0: Okay, well, let's get started. We're going to talk about sort of what what Mary and I are looking for, like what will be sort of when, when this indictment uh, drops and. Notice I say when, not if. So
1: say you skipped if you went straight to when.
0: Right to when. And we're going to talk about what each of us is would be sort of interested in in observing. And some of this will be sort of inside baseball. Uh and then we're going to talk about just some mechanical issues of what could be going on right now, like how this grand jury presentation ends, what what sort of typically is done. And then finally we're going to talk about whether we think there's any prospect of a plea deal and what that would look like. But Mary, why don't we start with when this indictment drops, what, what are you going to be most interested in if you picked one or two things that you're going to be interested in reading about?
1: Sure. You know, we've talked so much really in many ways ever since the execution of the search warrant about what the charges might be. And we've certainly talked about two real categories of charges, I'd say. One is the mishandling of classified, or not classified necessarily, but national defense information, and that's an important distinction. Um, And the second is obstruction of justice. So on the first, mishandling of classified information or mishandling of national defense information, we've been focused a lot of the discussion on a statute that's codified at 18 U.S. Code 793. And that really applies to both Unlawfully retaining national defense information after you've been instructed and directed to return it. And that's the main thing we've been talking about, right? Because if it was unclear whether Trump himself took part in the removal of classified or national defense information from the White House and bringing it to Mar-a-Lago, if that was unclear, what did seem clear based on the publicly revealed information is that he was aware that he was retaining it at Mar-a-Lago even after the archives first asked for him to return it and after a grand jury asked him to return it through the issuance of a grand jury subpoena after the Department of Justice ask him to return it that he was retaining it i think what's going to be interesting to see in any charges that might be brought is are there also charges related to unlawfully taking the information to begin with which would again depend on his knowledge and intent to pack up and move uh national defense information from the white house to mar-a-lago And are there any charges related to disseminating national defense information or even disseminating classified information in particular categories? And there are a couple of statutes that apply. And some of that comes into play because um, there's been various different reporting over the last several weeks about You know, first, him potentially leaving this available in his office at Mar a Lago and sometimes showing it to people who might come to visit. And more recently, there's been the revelations last week that at his golf club at Bedminster, he referred to a uh, highly classified document about iran when he was talking to two people working on the autobiography of mark meadows and that he suggested that he sure would like to share that document with them but he couldn't do that because it was classified so you know we'll see whether there's enough evidence that jack smith and his team have put together to support these other types of mishandling of classified information the dissemination of it, or even the original taking of it. But is yeah. it, do you have any other things in mind when it comes to
0: mishandling? Yeah, I do. With respect to dissemination, people might be asking, who cares? whether um, Does it make the charges any different? I mean, it's, it is another type of felony. And the answer to, is it more serious? Is yes. The unlawful taking or the unlawful retention has the risk of Improper dissemination, and that's serious, and it's prosecuted right. all the time and by the way, there's somebody who was just last week was sentenced to three years in prison for this um, where it was the unlawful taking and retention of documents um, so it, it's prosecuted all the time. Trump will be right. treated just like anyone else, but dissemination is the risk coming to fruition that is you know from a from an IC, the sort of intelligence community perspective, that's what you're most worried about. So the reason it'll be interesting, I agree with you that are we seeing dissemination Mm -hmm. is it makes it that much worse, uh, particularly from a sentencing perspective. You could imagine that the government's going to, if they get a conviction, is going to be talking about that. One thing I wanted to flag for people is this issue of improperly taking stuff from the White House. Because a lot of people on cable news and others just sort of say, oh, well, he illegally took stuff. Um, but that's not really the, the main and easiest charge. I agree with you is the illegal retention at Mar-a-Lago, perhaps elsewhere, perhaps Bedminster. Um, and the reason that illegal uh, taking is a harder charge is it's a much narrower window It is possible that he is a defense to he didn't know what was being boxed up, although he has made statements that make that a harder claim. But also he was the president at that time. So he could say, well, I'm entitled at that time to move it from place A to B. It wasn't illegally retained until I was no longer the president. So there's just a complicated series of possible defenses. So I agree with you, it'll be really interesting to see whether illegal taking is charged because it suggests that there's evidence that we don't know about as to what his scheme was at the time that he was still president uh, as he was leaving the White House. I think the other thing I'm gonna be interested in is, one, whether they're conspirators, whether they're other people who are charged Uh, such as Mr. Nauda, uh, sort of a low-level person who appears to have helped uh, move boxes and maybe a a conspirator with respect to obstruction of justice. So that'll be an interesting aspect. And um, the conspiracy charge and the potential unlawful taking charge also relate to something that Mary and I have talked about, which is, where is the proper venue? Like, I have no doubt that this case is going to be charged in Washington, D.C., but one of the issues I'm sort of interested in is what is going to be the factual evidence of what happened in Washington, D.C. to make sure that Donald Trump isn't going to have some kind of valid argument or defense to the case not being properly venued there, because If you're Donald Trump, he is going to try and have the case, if it is in D.C., somehow transferred um, under like a forum non-convenience argument or just sort of improper venue to have it transferred to Florida because he thinks he'll have a better jury pool, uh, which is potentially true. Um, So I'll be interested in in that. And obviously, the final thing I'll look for is who's the assigned judge, um, because I think that's going to be really critical to whether that judge is going to be moving the case along quickly. As Mary, you and I have talked about, I think that both the prosecutor and the judge are going to be potentially really interested in getting this to trial so that the American public has the information about whether a jury has determined this happened or didn't happen. And I I know that Donald Trump doesn't look at it this way, but he's entitled to have his name cleared in his day in court because he should be able to say, well, it didn't happen or it did happen and it should all get cleared up so that the electorate knows um, the information prior to voting.
1: Right. And, you know, we talked a few weeks ago about how The guarantee to a speedy trial, the constitutional speedy trial guarantee, is not just there for the benefit of the defendant, in this case if Donald Trump is charged, uh, for the very reasons you just indicated, so that they can clear their name quickly and not have charges hanging over their head, but it also is there for the benefit of society and the public interest in having important cases resolved in a timely fashion and not have the timeline manipulated by a charged defendant. So for all of those reasons, I think um, most judges will be trying to move things along pretty quickly. You know, as we were just talking a minute ago about the different types of mishandling of national defense information that might be at play here and what we're going to be looking for, I just wanted to point out two things. One is even though the same statute applies to Taking, retention, and dissemination, they still could be separate counts in an indictment. So if you have multiple means of committing an offense that fall under different ways they can be committed in the statute, that could be three separate charges, right? Or it could be even more if there were multiple instances of dissemination, you could have multiple charges based on each incident of dissemination. And the other thing, and I think we've talked about this briefly and touched on it, and maybe we're going to get into it a little bit more, Andrew, is, you know, I keep saying national defense information or classified information, and that's because yes. this
0: it's a particular mouthful.
1: statute that we're, it's a mouthful, yeah. So this particular statute we're talking about, uh, 18 U.S. Code 793, doesn't use the word classified information. It uses the term national defense information, which in most cases is classified information, the information at issue when the government charges. And as you indicated, many, many people have been charged with unlawful retention as well as takings, as well as dissemination. And usually the information is classified, but it wouldn't have to be. Being classified does not prove that it's national defense information for purposes of the statute. That would have to get proved at trial. And what it really requires, according to case law, is that the government prove that it's information that relates to the national defense that could be military-related or other types of national defense information, and also that it's been closely held and protected by the government and not you know, widely made available, which is where classification usually kind of hits that, holds Helps that you. criteria, because right. if it's classified, exactly, it's obviously closely held. And then in some cases, it's also been held to be required that the government would have to show that it would harm national security if it were disclosed to those unauthorized to receive it. Uh, although usually, frankly, once you meet those other criteria, that's going to be pretty easy to prove, particularly if it is classified, because the classification process itself um is the government saying that the information in this document or in this digital um file or what have you is so sensitive that it would cause harm or serious harm or exceptionally grave harm depending on what level we're talking about of classification to the national security if it were disclosed so we tend to kind of like shortcut national defense information or ndi by using the term classified but it is different now there's a separate statute that could be at play here Potentially, if there was dissemination, if there was sharing of information with somebody else, and that statute actually does use the term classified information, and it relates to specific classified information that has to do with communication intelligence systems, which also
0: could be at play here. But Mary, can I I just, I bet (laughs) that this is total um, speculation, but I bet that that gets charged. And I'll tell you my thinking. I, I totally mm-hmm. agree with you that they'll they'll definitely be the NDI type charges, but I could see Jack being, you know what, it's just a bunch of hogwash that this was declassified in his head. And if he wants to hop on the stand and testify to that, great. Be my guest. I mean, the best thing for this case will be Donald Trump testifying and the same reason that he testifying, didn't testify yes. in the Eugene Carroll case. So I see Jack going, you know what? We're just going to go with the facts that we know and we can prove, which is, you know what, if they have, for instance, dissemination of classified information, if they have the proof for that, that he showed it to aides and visitors, I think he's just going to go ahead and charge it and be like, you know what, if you've got witnesses like yourself or Kash Patel who want to testify that it was declassified in your head, be my guest. You're going to have Bring to take the stand and you're going to have to be cross-examined and we will let a jury decide whether that establishes reasonable doubt on that charge. Because um, I just see them going with what they know the facts are, which is that that is a implausible right. Defense.
1: I think that that's a great point because if it's just an NDI defense, he doesn't really have to, you know, say anything about this. I automatically declassified. But on the other hand, it also means that that's not an easy out for him, right? On that, on a NDI offense. So,
0: yeah, it's a great point. Exactly. There are a number of other things to look out for. I think that the obstruction charge, um, because this will most likely be what's called a speaking indictment. Uh, Just a a little aside here, um, when Mary and I have done cases where an indictment only needs to track the statutory language and it can be very bare bones and it doesn't really say anything, it just tells you what statutes have been charged and it lays out the language. Most times for a case like this, you have a speaking indictment where it tells the whole story. Almost all of the big cases that I've done, whether it's Enron or organized crime cases or special counsel Mueller cases. There were speaking indictments to sort of tell the story. Um, I think that the obstruction charge could be exceedingly ugly in terms of the facts. There could be sort of chapter and verse about lying to the archives, lying to the Department of Justice, lying to his own lawyers. I mean, it really could tell quite a a difficult story. There are a number of reasons for that, which is both educating the public to the righteousness of the case. It also has a subtle way of explaining why Donald Trump is being charged, but not Mike Pence or potentially, since we don't know the outcome, uh, the investigation of the current president uh, might end very differently than this one because of the nature of the obstructive conduct.
1: Yes, that's right. And we know from last week that the Department of Justice has written a letter to Mike Pence's counsel saying they've closed that investigation and won't be bringing any charges. And some people might be thinking, is that an ordinary thing? It certainly is not the case that every time that the Department of Justice does an investigation and decides not to bring charges that they write a letter to their target and their attorneys. But when you have something that was so public and open and an announcement not only of an investigation, but uh, well, in this one, I guess it was not the appointment of a special counsel. That was that was with respect to Biden. But, you know, definitely an announcement of an investigation. I think they felt like it was important to make a statement about it being closed without charges. Um, and so I was not surprised to see that. And I wasn't surprised to see it's closed without charges for all the reasons that you've just been indicating. Yeah. There's no suggestion in the publicly reported information that there was you know concealment or lying or lack of cooperation or anything like that in high contrast to what we're seeing with respect to uh Donald Trump and that's another area where some of the recent reporting really contributes to that you know we we, we talked a couple of weeks ago i think maybe we even called our episode something about uh Evan Corcoran's notes but um yeah we know that one of his attorneys had 50 pages we had heard of notes from his interactions with Donald Trump, Evan Corcoran being the attorney who was responsible for going down to Mar-a-Lago, searching for documents that would be responsive to the grand jury subpoena, packaging those up and delivering them to the Department of Justice on June the 3rd, and also delivering to the Department of Justice a letter signed by another Trump attorney, Christina Bob, that said a, you know, a diligent search had been conducted and all responsive documents were being provided. Oops! Now we know. Oops. But, yes. Oops. <laughs> yes. Yes. Not only, of course, were not all documents provided as the, as the search warrant that was executed later revealed, but we now have seen reporting that it wasn't just, you know, notes of Evan Corcoran, but an actual sort of dictated voice message uh, that he himself, you know, dictated into his cell phone, I guess, on a, on a long trip that goes into pretty significant detail, it sounds like, from the reporting about his interactions with Donald Trump.
0: Could be devastating. Yes, So, Mary, one thing that struck me and you reminded me of it when you talked about the letter involving Mike Pence is Mm -hmm. just think about the difference between how the Department of Justice and Merrick Garland handled that declination where basically because it was public, you issue this letter to the target saying we're closing the investigation. Obviously, that person can then make that letter public. And they could use it to essentially undo the aspersions of the public investigation. That's why you give a letter saying, you know, this has been closed. There's, there's, It's not going to go forward. Think about that versus the exact same thing with respect to Hillary Clinton, but James Comey uh, famously yep. held two press conferences without the attorney general's approval, just as the FBI director talking about he, not even a, a decision, just his recommendation that it be closed. But yep. then going on and on about how sloppy and deplorable her yep. handling was. Which, by the way, you could have said the same thing with respect to Mike Pence. Or not same, but a similar thing yeah. about yeah. you know obviously it's sloppy. It's, it's sloppy. It's, but that's not the role of a prosecutor or the FBI I to agree. give your opinions. And I just to me one is is how the department is supposed to behave. And the other is how the department shouldn't behave. Um, and I just thought yeah. it, it was just seeing a, a real sort of learning lesson for the public about the way you're supposed to handle closing of an investigation without charges. In, and I just think it's, that is a feather in the cap of Merrick Garland, an example of what you want to see the department doing.
1: Yeah, totally agree. It's not the opportunity to go on your, you know, bandwagon and say the the bad things about what you don't like about the person. You've made a yeah. clean, you've made a decision. You're not prosecuting and
0: you know that's it. and you can put your anything about opinions, that decision. You know that's could, right. Yeah. You know what? If we were in the department, you you and I wanted to talk about privately about what we thought, that's fine. <laughs> yep. You know, that's not our role is when we're in that's the right. department to start denigrating yep. somebody. While not
1: while you're in office.
0: Yeah. Anyway. Enough of my high horse on that. (laughs) More of Prosecuting Donald Trump, Federal Indictment Watch, in just a moment. So Mary, one of the things that I think people might be interested in is sort of like how the grand jury process typically works at this stage. And this is obviously a long-term investigation. Uh, And I've done a a whole bunch of these in my career because I know most prosecutors don't. Most prosecutors, you have very short cases and you might do a presentation to a grand jury in one sitting uh, at maybe two sittings. But it can be super short. I mean, it could take a half hour. It could take a couple hours. But, you know, in organized crime cases or in Enron or in the special counsel investigation, we had grand juries that sat for up to three years because um, they were called special grand juries and they could sit for up to three years right. and grand jurors and the grand jury know so much about the case. So typically in that kind of long-term setting, before you present charges, there's sort of a summing up and a reminding of the... Uh, evidence that the grand jurors heard, so that you're going over what are the proposed charges, what is the sort of evidence that goes to each of the elements. You read the, the jury instructions, they know uh, what the elements are. And then you ask them about, you know, do they have any questions, et cetera. Of course, there are a whole bunch of legal admonitions you give them, which is what you say is not evidence. If you say something that's different than their recollection, it's their recollection that covers. Um, And then the grand jurors go ahead and if they have no more questions and they deliberate, and that deliberation happens with no one in the room other than the grand jurors, not a court reporter, not a prosecutor. And they could reach a decision quickly, not quickly. They could come back and have questions, um, ask to hear something differently. In the federal system, unlike New York, they can rely on hearsay and all sorts of evidence um, that's not sort of direct evidence. In my view, that's sort of the typical process I engaged in. I don't know, Mary, if you had a different way that you used to go about doing this.
1: You know, one thing, Andrew, and just hearing you describe that is For the general listener, it's really not at all unlike a closing argument in a regular jury trial. And, you know, reporters report about closing arguments in high-profile cases all the time. They'll they'll report about what the prosecutor argued in terms of here are the charges, here are the elements of each offense, here's the evidence. Remember you heard from witness X and he told you X, Y, Z. Remember you saw document Y and from that you learned, you know, X, Y, Z. And 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 they just sum up everything. And it's very much the same in front of the grand jury, except that there's no defense counsel to give a defense closing argument. The closing argument just comes from the prosecutor. And like you said, just like a regular jury after a jury trial, the grand jury then deliberates in secret with no prosecutor there, no reporter. Um, but what is different is they can say, you know what, here are the charges we're comfortable with on this charge, we're, we'd kind of like to hear some more evidence on this. We maybe we think the the evidence of one of the elements of the crime, maybe willfulness. We think we're a little, you know, we'd like to hear from so and so witness. Um, is that somebody we, you know, prosecutor you'd consider subpoenaing? They can do that. Uh, that's of course not something that a regular jury can do. They can't say at the end of the trial. Hey, you know, we think the prosecutor, (laughs) we'd like to hear from another witness. Could you call one? You know, no, the prosecutor (laughs) got their shot and they don't get another chance to add evidence. But in the grand jury, it works differently. And so one thing we're hearing about um, some, you know, rumors that the grand jury is coming back this week, I think on Wednesday, you know, the question is, are they coming back for a summation? Are they coming back for more witnesses? Have they even already potentially had a summation from the prosecutor and maybe indicated there's some things they wanted to spend some time looking at or additional evidence they'd like to hear. And potentially the prosecutors are presenting that. Now, I'm just speculating and I'm just not even speculating because I'm not really suggesting it's one way or the other. Just want listeners to know there's lots of things that could be happening Um, and it could be more witnesses because the grand jury had more they wanted to hear from. Or it could be that, you know, this is going to be a time for a summation and maybe uh, them to deliberate. The other thing I'd indicate because you you suggested they get instructed about their uh, recollection controlling, and that's true. But they can also look at the evidence if they want, because evidence that's come in through subpoena, for example, those are subpoenas that were issued under the authority of that grand jury, and so they can say we want to look at these documents. You know, let's assume that Evan Corcoran's notes came in. They say we want to look at Evan Corcoran's notes before we make decisions. They can ask for that too. So in a case where you, as you said, Andrew, like many cases you've done and cases I've done as well, and people who worked for me have done where the investigation has gone on for many months or even years, you know, that's a lot for them to remember. So it can take them some time to then go back over. And even though this case hasn't been years, there's been a lot, I think, put in front of them. And so this is an important step in the process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I used to do this thing where before I asked the grand jurors to vote, we used to bring in all of the evidence to the grand jury room. So they actually had all of it um, at their disposal. And we sort of walked them through where it was and they had binders and they they would know exactly, you know, where to look. And then in their deliberations, they were free to do whatever they wanted with it, whether, you know, to read it to each other, to look at it not look at it etc right uh, you know i have to say i strongly suspect i will speculate that all of that's been done already and that if if there're going to be charges this week that We're really at the phase where the prosecutors are hearing from the defense lawyers that maybe Attorney General Garland's hearing an appeal of it, but they're sort of ready to go with the grand jury in that they know what the charges are, they know what the evidence is, and they're just waiting to sort of call for the final vote. But again, I could be wrong.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, that's a great segue, though, because we know that uh, defense counsel did write a letter to Attorney General Garland saying, essentially, we demand to talk to you about the unfairness that our client has been receiving in this case. Um, And so this could be the time where, you know, these appeals are being made. And that's the perfect segue to our last topic. You know, is there any chance of working out some sort of settlement of this. And by settlement of a criminal case, that usually means some sort of plea arrangement. And, you know, certainly uh, in many, many cases involving mishandling of national defense information, those cases have resolved through pleas, um, including in, you know, pretty significant cases or high-profile cases such as that involving General David Petraeus uh, that resolved in a plea agreement, and other similar cases have resolved in pleas. So, Andrew, (laughs) none of the people who have uh, pled guilty to crimes like this in the past is in my mind comparable to Donald Trump. Um, What do you think about, will there even be discussions about a plea? Will Donald Trump even consider them?
0: Will Jack Smith or the attorney general even consider it in a case like this? So I have two thoughts on that. One is that I was part of a group at Just Security that went through all of the prior DOJ Cases involving improper, illegal retention of documents, some of which also included obstructive conduct. Uh, and It's an to,
1: excellent resource, by the way, everyone. I was looking at it myself multiple times.
0: Excellent resource. It, especially. I actually thought the table of prior cases was so important because when, that's what the rule of law is about, which is treating equals equally. So the point is that many, many people... Um, have been charged in situations far less egregious than Donald Trump. But to your point, Mary, about sentencing and sort of what, what the ultimate outcome is, there is an unfortunate precedent in the department where very senior people have been charged and prosecuted but have gotten very, in my view, lenient plea deals if they plead guilty. Yes. So David Petraeus is a good example. I was at the FBI when that happened. I was not at the FBI when that was solved in a plea. I wouldn't have had the final say anyway, but I was thought that was a very inappropriate charge. He was given a misdemeanor, but he illegally took documents, he illegally retained documents, he illegally disseminated documents to a biographer, and the documents were classified, and he lied to the FBI about it when he was interviewed. So there was a lot to be said in terms of um, what he did. But he pleaded, and he obviously also had to step down. He was the then CIA director. So there were other factors there. There were Um, consequences, right. Exactly. And he obviously pled to a misdemeanor, but he didn't do jail time. Sandy Burger is another case. John Deutsch. I mean, they're, right. they're, unfortunately, it's a little topsy turvy. There's junior people who did things that were less bad who got prison time. More so time. I, I do think whether you like or dislike the Petraeus precedent, uh, or the Sandy Burger precedent, it's precedent. So that for, attorney general and jack smith it is something they have to weigh in deciding what's an appropriate offer if they're going to make one to the former president because you have to make sure that you're treating people comparably i tend to agree with you mary that depending on what the the facts are that that this situation's worse than the ones that i just talked about all that being said I can sort of cut to the chase here because no matter what they offer, I just don't see Donald Trump admitting his guilt through his own yeah. words and taking a plea where he has to say, I did something wrong. From a political point of view, his stock and trade is complete denial of reality yeah. and facts and saying it's a witch hunt. So I just don't think even if they offered him a misdemeanor, which I don't think they should, but even if they did, I don't see Donald Trump admitting under oath that he did anything wrong and engaged in obstruction. It it just isn't part of his nature and it's going to hurt him politically.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I mean, for him, everything is perfect, right? Everything he's ever done is perfect. So I think it would just be exceedingly difficult for him to be able to go ever into a court and and admit to a judge that he willfully and intentionally, you know, did anything uh, that was in violation of the law. Now, that actually, I hadn't really even thought about this until you were just articulating that, um, Andrew, and I think this is unlikely in, in, too, but just for listeners' benefit, there is another type of plea called an Alfred plea where a defendant <laughs> says, you know, I am not going to go in there and admit that I did something wrong, but I will admit that the government has enough evidence to convict me and therefore enter a plea. And um, the government doesn't really like to take those because part yeah, of very a plea agreement is somebody is accepting. Yes, it's very disfavored. Somebody is accepting responsibility, and when you do an Alfred plea, you're not accepting responsibility. I mean, you're you're explicitly not accepting responsibility. All you're saying is government has enough evidence to prove it, and I'm not going to make them go to trial. I'm just going to say, "Do, okay, do you I think, plead Mary, guilty. that
0: there's any chance in in God's green earth that the government would?" offer no an offered plate yeah <laughs> no <laughs>
1: okay because so here let, of, teaching, all, teaching of all lesson times over. and places that's <laughs> right. right that's right i mean the whole point here is accountability and yes. fairness and due process and everything but like what would have been the point just to say we amassed enough evidence to convict and he can sit there and continue to deny that he did anything wrong i just don't see that happening so bottom line is i'm with you i think that um if his attorneys come to the government say we our client is interested in talking about this, then I think the government will make some sort of offer. I'm not even sure they'll make one without that because I think they're engaging in the same you know, calculus we are that the likelihood is, is so unbelievably low. And I think they would also worry about gamesmanship with that too, right? Because yeah. that would derail bringing the indictment and then you'd set a date. And if Donald Trump comes in and, you know, reneges there. Then you're back to having to now indict and arraign and start that process. So I don't know. There are some downsides.
0: So having been a defense lawyer and also dealt with a lot of defense lawyers, um, one of the things that uh, experienced defense lawyers will do is they will try and find out from the government what they'd be willing to offer because they want to be able to go to their client and say, look. I just may, I need to tell you what the risks are here. You could go to trial. This is what I think will happen at trial. And this is the offer they're willing to make. Maybe we can whittle that down a little bit, but you, it's a way of carrying out your duties. Exactly. Um, So that a lot of times there's that discussion and defense counsel is doing it to get as much information as they can to give the client as many options so that they sort of decide knowingly, as much as they can knowingly, what they can do. So I could see those discussions happening, but not because Donald Trump's willing to take it, but because defense counsel is trying to do their job. Yeah. So Mary, I am confident this is what I would say is the beginning of this discussion. It'll be interesting to see, having flagged all these issues that we're going to be looking for, you know, you and I are probably salivating to start reading this yep. and analyzing which of these things comes to fruition and and the sort of pros and cons of, of the prosecutorial choices that we see in the language.
1: We're just going to have to wait and see. We're just going to have to be patient, Andrew.
0: I hate that. so um, Mary stay tuned I hate to say this we're going to probably be interrupting you during your vacation uh, for for more on Donald Trump Uh, talk to you very soon absolutely thanks so much for listening we'll be back next week if not sooner with much more if you've got questions you can leave us a voicemail at 917-342 Two nine three four, and maybe we'll play it on the pod. Or you can email us with questions at prosecuting Trump questions at NBCUNI.com. The senior producer for the show is Alicia Conley. Jessica Schrecker is a segment producer. Our technical director is Bryson Barnes. Jim Maris Perez is the associate producer. Aisha Turner is an executive producer. And Rebecca Cutler is the Senior Vice President for Content Strategy at MSNBC. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts and follow or subscribe to the series.